G'day and welcome to Grad Chat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I am your host for this week's Grad Chat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts and Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. Today, though, I'd like to introduce you to Jackson Pinn, who is doing a PhD in education under the supervision of Dr. Theodore Christo. Welcome to Grad Chat, Jackson. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yay! I've got to love that. I love that. So first, I actually first got to meet Jackson officially during a panel discussion on our membership with the Matariki Network. And, and Jackson has been a part of some of the programming with that, particularly last year when Queen's hosted our Matariki partners here on campus. I'm going to leave that a little bit. So I'm going to leave you guys hanging. A little bit of a teaser. <laughs> a little yeah. bit of a teaser there because you're probably saying, what the heck is Matariki? But we're going to get we are going to get to that because I think it's pretty important for everyone to understand where we are there. But let's get straight into your research. So your research examines the history of Indian day schools in Ontario between 1920 and, and the year 2000. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that research that you're doing? Um, yeah, for sure. That's a, a big question, obviously. It is a big question. <laughs> it's a four-year project that I've been working on. But yeah, so I'm looking at the history of Indian day schools in Ontario. As you mentioned, there's never been a history of those schools in Ontario during those time periods for some reason. Yes, surprising. So, yeah, very surprising. So my research is hoping to fill in that research gap um, in the literature. But basically what an Indian day school is, is a racially segregated school that Indigenous children had to attend basically from when Canada was started, but mandatorily enforced in 1920 up until 2000. And these schools, there's been a lot of news recently over the last couple of years because of a national class action uh, lawsuit uh, alleged by the Indian Day School survivors. Right. They're saying that abuse this is the same as residential schools, so sexual, physical, and mental abuse, as well as the loss of Indigenous languages was the end result of these schools and that they should be compensated fairly. So this was settled last year in March 2019, but then there's some legal stuff they had to work out. So it's been officially released uh, just in January 2020. So all Indian Day School survivors can now apply for compensation for what happened in these schools. And it ranges from $10,000 to $200,000, depending okay. on how much the severity of the abuse was. And there's supposed to be as well uh, $20 million in kind of education funds that are still kind of being debated about where they should be going, but that sh should be at least to commemorate what happened as well. I guess the obvious question to me, well, maybe it's not for everyone, but it is for me, what made you want to go into this particular field of study? Because first of all, you talk about this is day school, not residential mm -hmm. school, which yeah. we hear a lot about residential yeah, school. Sure. This is day school. Mm -hmm. What made you want to get into that field? Uh, that's a good question. So in my master's degree, I studied a person in Northern Ontario who was uh, kind of a settler trustee, and he worked with Indigenous people in the local area around Sudbury to try to incorporate them from the day schools and residential schools into public schools. So that's kind of how I learned about the day schools to start. I guess the main reason that when I came to Queen's is that I started just researching more about the Indian day schools. And I found that, especially in education, we had such a big push after the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation reports. Right. But we didn't really have anything for the Indian day schools. And I felt those survivors were being left out of the conversation. 
Right now, there's 200,000 Indian day school survivors that have been identified versus 150,000 for residential school survivors. Oh, okay. So right. more students went to that um, school. And then as also I kind of started talking to more people, I found that 2,000 Indian day school survivors die every year, which really decreases our amount of knowledge about the school. So I felt it was an urgent problem to look at. And then just basically my own background as well. So part of my family's from Alderville First Nation, which is about two hours from here. Luckily, we never had to go to a residential or Indian day school because my great-great-grandfather enfranchised, which means in 1909, he gave up his right to be a First Nation person to move off reserve and go to okay. the nearby city of Lakefield and then started his family there with 13 kids. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why he didn't want to stay in the community, just right. because he didn't have to force his kids to go to those schools. So I'm lucky to kind of have a good education and a university degree and like a lot of opportunities so I've kind of felt as a way to give back I can do especially with my historical background bring mm -hmm. some light onto this problem. That's a very good reason for, for doing yeah. it so I'm, I'm glad you are doing it and I, and I think as I alluded to earlier is that there's been a lot of study on the residential mm -hmm. but not yeah. on the day school and uh, so this work is going to be very very important. Now you did say a little bit about what is an Indian day school? Mm -hmm. And you said, was it 200,000? Yeah, 200,000 across Canada. But I'm focusing mostly on Ontario. So I'll just give you maybe a brief overview of what they've been defined as so far. And okay, then we can great. talk about it a little more. So on the West Coast, actually, one of my committee members, Dr. Helen Raptus, has studied the day schools out on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of the only person that's looked at it within the last 20 years. And basically what she has defined the Indian day schools are is just basically a rural one-room schoolhouse, which a lot of people I think are familiar oh, with. Right, okay. But it was a partnership between the federal government who would provide all the funding and a number of religious organizations that would do the day-to-day -day kind of operations of the schools. Mm -hmm. So that kind of partnership developed throughout the kind of 17 and 1800s, then eventually became really formalized in the 1900s. And then in 1920, the government um, mandated attendance and they'd use like the RCMP, the police services to force people into the school, such oh, as really? residential and Indian Oh, I didn't day realize schools. that. Yeah, mm -hmm. so the, I guess the religious aspect of it, so each school is kind of different based on what religious organization was a part of it. So I know right now that the United Church, the Roman Catholic, Church, the Presbyterian Church, the formerly Methodist Church, right. and the Anglican Church were kind of all involved in this, and especially in Ontario. Every single church was in a different area for a different reason. Right. Yes, the church has got involved in a lot of those mm -hmm. sorts of things. Yeah. And I, I guess I could bring my background in here, not as an Indigenous person, but coming from Australia, because we had similar issues in Australia, yeah, very, um, which we're not too proud of either. Mm -hmm, for sure. So yeah. um, it's, it's good that you're bringing this to light. So that was the West Coast, but also you sort of mentioned mm -hmm. the Ontario. Ontario. Before you go a bit more into your own work, was this was this happening across Canada? So both in French-speaking Canada as well as English-speaking Canada? Yeah, for sure. That was happening across Canada. So actually in the Maritimes, they didn't actually have any residential schools. They okay. just had Indian day schools. Ontario had 18 residential schools. And then so far as what we know of 183 Indian day schools. So okay, they right. operated almost on every reserve that was created after okay. the Indian Act and kind of acted as a means of control on each one of those reserves. That's a lot. Yeah, there's quite that a is. bit. I think right now the estimates from the, I guess, the lawsuit, and I guess I'd like to preface all this by saying that the data and all the numbers that we have are un incomplete right. due to a number of factors with the federal government protecting documents and a lot of the religious organizations. For right. example, if you know the Roman Catholics still have not shared documents about one of their most horrific schools, St. Anne's in Northern Ontario. Okay. Um, a lot of the stuff they've just kept because I think of legal reasons, honestly, because right. a lot of the blame can fall on their 
shoulders, and I don't think they want to expose that. Expose that because they've been exposed for a lot of other things recently. Yeah, yes, for a, a as lot well. of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So always good to good to know. It's interesting you talked about truth and reconciliation report that came out in twenty fifteen. 2015, mm-hmm. yep. and you're only looking up to 2000. Yep. Being a complete novice here, mm-hmm. when did Indian day schools actually stop in existence, or are they still in existence? That's a controversial question. Oh, yeah, is it? But, okay. Um, <laughs> I would say that if you'd like to understand a day school as something that starts at 9 a.m. and goes to 5 o'clock and mandated by provincial or federal government, they're still going on today. So 2000 is the year the government likes to say is like the year. I'm not really 100% sure why that's the year they've chosen it's just a year that they can I think fairly compensate people up to a certain time and then cut off I think it was more of a legal decision than a historical decision I know since 1972 a lot of First Nations have been really pushing for their own control of Indigenous education that's happened in some areas in Northern Ontario like the Anishinaabek education framework which was developed in 2017 when they signed it and that was 26 First Nations so they can have control of some aspects of their education. But for right. instance, if they want to go to post-secondary, they still have to meet provincial standards. And funding is still through the federal government. So there's there's issues with that, again. Is it really their own education or just kind of their own education, but still mandated by the federal government? Right. Okay. So that's, okay. So that's kind of a controversial question. If, yes, it makes it a bit tricky, if, doesn't it? Yeah, if it's still ongoing or what, 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 what would have you, I'd say. There's still mm-hmm. lots of issues, I think, with Indigenous education and bringing that into the system in Ontario. My supervisor was supposed to to do that in 2018, but that was cancelled by the Ford government. Um, oh, they were supposed well. to put like the history curriculum back into the, I guess, provincial curriculum. And then I know as well that Indigenous people, especially First Nations, are 27% less likely to graduate from high school. So that really impacts how they've um, be able to, I guess, social mobility, go to post-secondary and stuff. So the legacy of the Indian Day Schools is still quite apparent. Okay, so I'm going to get back onto your questions okay. that you've Sounds given good. me, okay. because there's lots of other yeah. things I'm thinking of right <laughs> now, sure. but I don't want to okay. miss the kind of questions that that you want to be able to answer as well. So how will you be studying the history of, as you put here, this sensitive topic in an, an Indigenous method? Okay, so I'm lucky to have a lot of good people on my committee. One is Dr. Lindsay Morecambe, who's been yes. advising me Brilliant. about kind Brilliant of indi- Indigenous methods, and she's a Canadian research chair in decolo- decolonializing Indigenous education and language revitalization. So she's really been helping me guide how I can do this appropriately. Um, I guess the way I've been approaching is it that I realize this is a problem of history, where there's lots of archives to go into, but also mm-hmm. History, history of people's oral experience and what they actually experience at the schools, and right. those things don't really line up that often. So my job is to kind of connect the two as best I can. So I guess the approach I'm doing is called two-eyed seeing, which you use both Western methodologies and Indigenous methodologies at the same time, and do your best to try to fit them together, which is more difficult than it sounds, but it, it, yes. <laughs> it's, it sometimes works depending on what happens. But the way I'm really approaching it is I. I see this problem as kind of the three R's. So the three R's of history are writing, reading, and arithmetic, I argue. So that's like the writing of what we actually write in documents. And uh, reading is how we read the archives and read other people have written about this. And then the arithmetic is kind of like the math of all the stuff that happened, all the stats that we have. Because a lot of the resources we have are just kind of numbers and there's no body attached to them. It's just a a number of something. So that's kind of the way I'm approaching the history. And that's a lot of that research is going to be done at the Federal Archives in Ottawa, but also the Ontario Archives in Toronto. But then the way I'm approaching the Indigenous research is completely different. It's called um, the three R's in Indigenous research. It actually lines up perfectly. It's respect, reciprocity, and relationships. Those are the three 
I think they sound a lot nicer. They do sound nicer. And it's also less academic. (laughs) Very less academic. So those can be defined in a number of different ways. But the way I'm approaching it is I'm going to be inviting Indian Day School survivors to talking circles or oral history interviews. Right. And then I'm just going to ask kind of three basic questions and record that. But the way I'm recording it, I think, is a little different than other research. I'm trying to do this new method to record history so it's a little better to share. It's going to use 360 video. So okay. you place kind of the camera in the room and you can share and get an entire circle in one recording. So you can see the, the people's movements. Yeah, you can see how well. they, yeah. not, not just yeah. the voice. And it's really more of indigenous methodology where you right. can see what's actually happening. And then when I can reshare this, you can see actually what they talked about. If you've seen VR before, you can put on the VR headset and see it as like an actual experience rather than oh, kind of... So actually sitting in the circle Yeah, rather everybody. than just listening to it on like an audio. Like oh, that's pop. pretty cool. So uh, yeah, it's going to be hopefully really interesting. But again, there's problems and issues with doing that type of research is that is that the ethics side of it uh, and getting permissions to do it that way that's definitely one of the kind of concerns i have so luckily i have all of queen's ethics done right now but now i'm working on the indigenous side so the indigenous side's ethics is a little different they have Mm -hmm. a completely different kind of way they approach research and the way it should be managed one of the main ways is to have a survivor's council so every person that gets involved with the research is going to have a say in where that research will go and how it will be used that's good and that'll be kind of a different approach than what happens and other kind of things where you go in and you just take the research and you leave and you get done and nothing really. You get something published, but then maybe they'll see it and maybe they won't. And then the way I'm approaching it is to use the Ontario Federation of Indigenous Friendship Centers. Well, this is the plan, hopefully, if everything <laughs> works out. But they have a lot of urban locations I'm trying to target because right now right. almost 75% of First Nations live in urban areas, not on reserve anymore. Right. So I'd like to target these urban big six in Ontario. So I'm going to go to Ottawa, Toronto, London, Sudbury, Sault Ste. Marie, and Thunder Bay. And right. these areas are the biggest Indigenous populations. And I'll hopefully hold these talking circles and get, gather a lot of data from a across the country and then try to put it all together into an understanding at least of a little section of Ontario's Indian Day schools. So what happens then because you talk about putting it into a talking circle and filming filming that and one of the areas of uh, Indigenous ethics is making sure everyone is Mm -hmm. okay with what gets published Mm -hmm. or put out there to the rest of the world. What happens within one of those circles that after the fact yeah. One of your participants decides or two mm-hmm. decide, you know what, I don't want to be in that yeah. because that's kind of stuffed it up a little bit, yeah. hasn't it? it? I think that's obviously one of the concerns. I think mm-hmm. luckily now, um, so the program I'm thinking of using is GoPro. So they have a new camera that films in 360 right. and it all gets downloaded to an app and it's saved in the app. And then afterwards you can edit that video so you can cut people out or blur them if they don't want to oh, be on the video. Right? Okay. So there's after editing effects that I can use to hopefully mitigate that So issue. still have their voice but not have them seen. Yeah, or if they don't want to be in entirely, I could cut, then it. You can cut yeah. it. cut or it Or like blur them out and block them out so they're not in it at all. Right. So I think that'll be hopefully one of the routes and I'm also hoping to do some just one-on-one interviews mm-hmm. with people that may be not comfortable with doing a talking circle or not familiar with that. So it's more personal and then they can keep it. And then as part of that, if people join the study, I'm offering as well to help them with their historical writing of their legal application. So right. the legal application, there's been a lot of discussion about how unfair it is and how you have to have a degree in law to kind of try to understand, to understand it. That. Yeah, yeah they, that's what legal mm-hmm. legalities are all about, make it as confusing yeah. as ever. And then on top of that, it's like 15 pages and you have to verify the school you went to. And we know the records aren't that clear and that's right. very difficult to put together if you don't have a historical background or have never been to an archive before. 
So people that join this study, I'm offering to give them back the audio tape so they have that as evidence, as well as a historical write-up of the school they went to, with stuff I can find from the archives that can hopefully help. Can I ask a question in relation to, I mean, you started talking about, you wanted about an oral history, and you mentioned earlier that as with what's happened in residential schools and day schools, there were still abuses and things mm-hmm. like that. Are your questions more around that side of history, or is being an educator yourself, is it also around with what was the education itself like? Mm-hmm. With not excluding those other yeah. things that are going on, which clearly shouldn't be happening, mm-hmm. but what about the education themselves? Are they getting the education that they feel is going to help them mm-hmm. move forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm asking kind of three main questions that I'm asking. I'm asking kind of what did you experience at an Indian day school? Mm-hmm. How did these impact you later in life? And right. what would you like to be remembered about the Indian day school? So I think that kind of covers all of what we're interested in. We're mm-hmm. interested in what they actually experienced because we don't know that hardly at all in Ontario. We're interested in why that kind of impacted them later in life and how it could have they could have seen now looking back on their life if that really was something that was either motivational in the wrong or right ways. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what we should be teaching about that in our schools and how we should remember it. Because I think if we just remember it from the documents, it's going to be much different than if we remember Correct. it from the actual people. So Correct. that's kind of the three main questions I'm going to ask. I'm sure there's going to be other questions that come out of that once we start talking to people and kind of narrowing down the experiences of people especially across areas I would say like in northern Ontario we know that the schools are really spread apart for example around Thunder Bay there's only nine schools but okay. down by London there is one reserve with nine schools so those really contained schools of those schools that are really different I think there's different experiences I think that's the way we're really approaching the research is going to be in northern Ontario and southern Ontario just because of the differences in kind of climate and people and how it's been arranged but I think overall, that's what we're trying to figure out. And taking it one step further then from what you might learn, uh, you talked about what can be then taught within, may I call it, mainstream Mm -hmm. education system, which I don't actually particularly like in in that sense. But are you hoping also to find out whether these Indigenous students... From, from their learnings, what can, what can they bring into mainstream? Like you said, you know, what can mm-hmm. be still poured in the historical facts? Let's get the historical mm-hmm. facts yeah. correct and, and mm-hmm. teach them in the school correctly. But also as an Indigenous student themselves, making sure that they're getting the education that they need both to keep their Indigenous identity mm-hmm. alive, yeah. but also be able to continue on moving forward to what is happening in Canada today. Fix the problems. Let's move forward together. Mm, for sure. I think that's a valuable point. I'm I'm definitely hoping this stuff can be translated as much to education because I'm in the education yes. faculty. I think it's really valuable for students just to learn about the history of these schools and how they've impacted either their family or someone they know and that they can understand that schools aren't always the best opportunity for education, but it's right. a way that you can kind of move up in society if everything works out, but also a way you, you can now keep your identity and make sure it's a, an important part of you moving forward. And then also playing a role in the future as well that these schools aren't going to be forgotten about just mm-hmm. because they were weren't as talked about or there wasn't a huge royal commission about them that they're still an important part of our psyche and especially when we're going approaching education with first nations we really should question ourselves if we're doing the same things in the past is it going to be like assimilation just trying to right, push them which in we don't want to do. which we don't want to do no. so we i think having a really solid example from the past of what not to do is a really good template for not what to do in the future can I ask, do you mind if I ask you this a p- more personal yeah, question? Sure. So you didn't go to day school no, because no. your grandfather chose no. to... Enfranchise. Yeah, en- yeah. Enfranchise. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that you've missed out on 
yeah. a part of that. Not mm-hmm. not the abusism things, yeah. but missed out on the education of being around. I'm really lucky, I feel like. So before I really came to Queens, I never really talked about my identity or really did anything. Right. But working with Lindsay, it's been more of a priority. I've been taking Indigenous language classes now. Fantastic. And, and it's been a really good time. So I think a lot of that stuff was just not talked about in my family after we left. Okay. Yeah, I don't really have that much experience on reserve as well. Like I grew up beside reserve, but I wasn't really on the reserve. So right. those are border there just talking about like beyond board boundaries that we yes, talked about this yes. weekend for SGPS the conference but I don't think I missed out on anything but I feel like now I'm kind of playing catch up on cultural stuff especially I think last year in the Matariki program really ignited a, a lot more for me like I was starting right. to do these things while I was working with it but then I had this big two-week experience at the Matariki program where we did a lot of ceremony and like a sweat lodge and stuff so right. and I was adopted into the Maingan clan which is the wolf clan so oh, cool. there's a lot of like important kind of cultural milestones I've had at Queens that I'm really thankful for. So, so let's let's go into that the mm-hmm. Matariki and I, we know I know we gave a bit of a teaser yeah. for that at the beginning <laughs> yeah. so uh, can you explain to everyone I mean Queens is part of what it's called the Matariki Network mm-hmm. and there's seven universities yep. from around the world. Mm-hmm. So we have Uppsala from Sweden, we've got Tobungan from Germany, yep. Dartmouth from the US, Durham mm-hmm. from the UK, yeah. University of West Australia, my alma mater, mm-hmm. and University of Otago from mm-hmm. New Zealand and us. Sure. So seven very different universities. Mm-hmm. But there's there's some particular programming that they do once a year where some of our students either go to one of these universities or they come to us like they did mm-hmm. last year yeah. to talk about programming education with Indigenous populations. Mm-hmm. So what was your experience in that? Because I know yeah. you helped coordinate the one that was here on, at Queen's campus. Uh, yeah, for sure. So I guess less... Last January, Lindsay was tagged as kind of the team leader of that. So she asked a number of her grad students to help plan this two-week course that was going to happen at the end of June and the first week of July last summer. So all of these students would come to Queens. The theme of the program was language, learning, and land. And we kind of connected back to the Eastern Ontario Indigenous groups, especially in Tainadaga. And we learned about what happened to Indigenous people in this area, what are their cultures, what are their traditions. And it was just a two-week, very intensive, (laughs) everyday (laughs) course. I think we traveled over 1,800 kilometers in the province during that time. We went to Ottawa. We went to the Petroglyphs in Peterborough, which is about two and a half hours. Fantastic. We went to Curve Lake First Nation and went to the Weetung Center. And then a number of lucky guest speakers from the Queen's community came in and talked to them as well about just indigenous ways of being and knowing and how you could be inspired to kind of keep going through this route. I think a lot of the students there were undergraduates, but they're looking to do some further graduate work in their own kind of respective departments. Right. I feel like it was a life-changing experience for me. I'm sure it was for a lot of them as well. We've had a lot of good feedback from that. This year, it's actually not happening. It's taking a year off and then okay. going the following year, uh, hopefully to the University of Otago. Great. And then it's going to be a new student. So every year, new students come in and then new students leave. But I thought it was um, a really good experience. And we also went to Elbow Lake for three days, which was a really it's good always time. nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a really, really fun time. I was actually the camp chef as well. So. Oh, is that right? <laughs> now you see, you should do what we do at our dissertation on the lake. It's sort of everyone's everyone's cabin gets a chance to oh, cook. Okay. That, that would have been a better plan, but I didn't mind. It was fun to cook for everyone here, and uh, it was a really great time. So I noticed with the Matariki, with that particular program you're talking about, University of Otago actually ran the first one. Yep. And some of our grad students and postdocs went across to that, and they were looking at education, how the Maori culture was ingrained in the mm-hmm. education system yep. there, special programming to talk about the Maori mm-hmm. culture and how, it, how it's been integrated 
integrated better into the system. So did the people who came to the one here at Queen's, were they actually Indigenous students from their own countries or mm-hmm. they were just interested because Australia and New Zealand and that and mm-hmm. and, and America and, mm-hmm. and of course us, we have Indigenous yeah. students. You don't often think about who's the Indigenous for Sweden and Germany, mm-hmm. for, for sure. instance, or even the UK. Yeah, I think they're all Indigenous people that came, especially the Maori from New Zealand. They're like mm-hmm. a big part of it. From Upsalia, actually, we had someone from the Philippines who was Indigenous to the Philippines, so uh, they weren't okay. actually from Sweden. Right, but they and were then, over there. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. no one from German, Germany actually came to On this, this one. Time. Yeah, right. so it was mostly pe- people from Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, and then we had a bunch of people actually from Canada too, from, right. from across, even including up in the Northwest Territories, and then groups in the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe from this area. Right. And so I think one of the other things I'd like to talk about them, because with, with the Matariki Network, where we have these opportunities to do exchanges, mm-hmm. and it's not just on the Indigenous section mm-hmm. either. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for our students and faculty to go and either do exchange or go and speak at these other universities and vice versa. But the, we- the weekend of uh, the end of February, beginning of mm-hmm. March, the Society of Graduate and Professional Students, the SGPS, ran a conference mm-hmm. called Beyond Boundaries which was a v- excellent, mm-hmm, excellent was a weekend. Yeah. Uh, I was lucky to go and listen to quite a few of the, the presentations given, and I know you were a part of mm-hmm, one of those panels. Sure. And what was great about this was the discussions that talked about what is boundaries mm-hmm. in research mm-hmm. and everything else that we for do. Sure. So what was the one that you were talking about? Because mm-hmm. like what you did with the Matariki, this is mm-hmm. a similar thing of sort of spreading some of that extra knowledge that we don't always hear too much about. Yeah, for sure. So I served on, a, I guess not served, but I participated <laughs> <laughs> on a panel of uh, education and reconciliation that was sponsored by the Faculty of Education. And the way we presented it was the past, present, and future of kind of decolonializing education in Canada. Right. So I got together with Brittany, who is actually part of the Manariki program, yes. a friend I've met yes. through that from network. Yeah, yes, from kinesiology. Yeah, from kinesiology. And then as well as Kim, who's from uh, geography. Right. And we kind of, I presented my stuff on the history of Indian day schools and where we've gotten to. I guess Brittany presented on the cross and how she's using that today and what's going on with that and how she can incorporate indigenous teachings into lacrosse and right. health studies. And then Kim approached studies with teacher candidates and like discussed ways in which they were not being prepared enough for right. the education education in the future. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a big overview from different faculties on what reconciliation education has been and what we should try to aim for. And then we had a really good discussion with a lot of audience members about reconciliation and is it, is it if it's dead now, especially with the recent right. stuff that's been going on with the protests. So right, yes. there's a really rich discussion after as well. Right. And that's, that's one of the beauties of being at a university. Mm-hmm. You, you do get to see all these different perspectives and the discussions are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone can sort of put their point of view across Mm -hmm. um, whether we agree with all of them or not it's it's good to have those discussions but have it in a way that we can all see how things cross over with each other Mm -hmm. so back to your what are you hoping to get out of your your studies in the end Mm -hmm. because you've you've clearly thought about what's happened Mm-hmm. What could be happened? What have people gone through? Mm-hmm. But what are you hoping to get from it, knowing that, and I'm, I don't know whether I can say this, but knowing that provincial governments can change their mind of how, what education should look like mm-hmm. very, very quickly, as we've seen in mm-hmm. the past. For sure. And you're looking at Ontario. Mm-hmm. So what are you hoping to be able to show or hopefully happen? Is it towards policy? Is it towards just a, an acknowledgement? 
what are you hoping to get? I think it's a multiple range of things. I think there's not just maybe one goal, but maybe a few tied within mm-hmm. that one goal. I think the first one is just education. I feel like actually I go to like some bookstores and stuff and I asked if you have anything on Indian day schools and like people they look at you no. strange and like, yeah, that's yeah, not a real... they don't know the term, right? Yeah, and it's mm-hmm. not a term that's kind of in our culture. So I kind of want to make sure people know what that term is and how it's used and why it's important to know about them. I think another goal would probably be to policy as well, just to influence how we think about Indian day schools, how these schools have been used even currently and how it's still a current issue that's going on. I really don't, as even though I'm a historian, I think the past is valuable. I think it has more value on what is going on today than it did in the past. So I think really making it a contemporary issue and and a discussion about how education has been received by First Nation people and how we can change the systems pretty easily because they're all kind of made up as they were uh, back in the 1920s or so. So I think just challenging those ideas that have been really, I guess, a mainstay of our kind of colonial mindset for the last 200 years or so. So I think that's a very big goal. I think there's a lot of things you can do towards that one. Well, I think I think the big thing, as you mentioned, is is getting an awareness out there mm-hmm. because a lot of us aren't aware. I mean, I'm an immigrant to this this wonderful country, so I feel very very privileged. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be an awareness. Yeah, I mean, our sure. history our histories have to be changed mm-hmm. because for the history sure. is all about interpretation mm-hmm. and what gets left yeah. in and what, what gets left, left out yeah. um, can make a huge impact as we as yeah. we're moving forward. So I think we it's getting to the point where you know we shouldn't be afraid to tell the truth. Mm-hmm, we shouldn't sure. hide the truth, mm-hmm. but we should be learning from what we're uncovering. I agree with that and, for and sure. things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so with with all of this, how much more time are you? Because you haven't started your. Yeah, circles the, yet because you've yeah. got to get through all the ethics right yeah the, the second part of the ethics yeah so i'm hoping this summer will be a lot of the data collection and then right. over the next year i can finish writing it up and i think this summer i'm really planning on doing it just full-time interviewing as many people as i can so if you know anyone please <laughs> send them my way but send them yeah, your way. yeah that's the goal this summer uh do the, the uh, are some of the nations that you're looking at are they on board with what you're trying to do because um, i know that's the yeah, big part sure. of it right because we've got to share we can't just assume mm-hmm. yeah. that it's okay to do this so I guess two years ago, I can talk about the relationship I developed with Peguis First Nation. Okay. Uh, they're actually on Hockey Night in Canada over the weekend, which is pretty interesting oh, to wow. see them. Yeah, but they're one of the largest First Nation groups actually in Manitoba, which is outside right. of Ontario. But in 2018, I went to a lecture here that was free at the time by Kevin Lamoureux, who was a National Center for the Truth and Reconciliation Education lead. And then afterwards, I asked him, like, why I didn't talk about Indian Day schools. And right. he told me to contact this man named Raymond Mason, who is an elder at Peguis First Nation. And then through the last two years, we've been helping Ray write a book. And his book is about challenging the Indian residential and Indian day school agreements. So his group called Spiritwind uh, organized 5,000 different survivors in Manitoba. And then pushed for the federal government to get recognition through both of those agreements that he was part of. And then his story as well is pretty inspiring because he went to a residential and day school for over 12 years in Manitoba. So it really shaped his mindset and his and his beliefs towards Canada as a country. So we've been trying to work with him to share his story and get it out more. It's actually coming out this fall. So we're, we're getting really excited about it coming out. I think we're going to be signing the contract any day too. So we're, Yay! Yeah, it's really Gotta exciting. Love that. Mm-hmm. So, so this has happened in Manitoba. Yes. Uh, so Ontario is just behind the, the ball here. Yeah, I think Manitoba is just a little farther ahead of just education and how right. they're like integrating it into the curriculum. I know Ray goes to quite a few schools. He actually came to Queens for three days where we recorded his oral history and presented right. to some wise students over on uh, the Faculty of Education, right. which is the mm-hmm. World Indigenous Studies program. 
So I think, yeah, they're just getting the word out of there's a lot of inspiring people like Ray who have done a lot of work behind the scenes and trying to share their, their stories with people. Do you, do you think, and I'm looking forward here, do you think this book when it comes out is something that a school would actually want to be as part of their curriculum? Yeah, we're really hoping, hoping that would be the case. Yeah, it's called uh, Spirit of the Grassroots People Seeking Justice for Colonial Survivors of the Indigenous Education System. So their uh, approach to learning, I think, is going to be really useful. We, we approached mm-hmm. it in way kind of what we've been doing with my own research um my supervisor ted's a co-author on it so um we let kind of raymond's story speak for itself but me and ted put in some a lot of uh, footnotes and we've contextualized the story within the greater kind of picture of canadian background during that time period so there's a lot of sources that we drew from like the truth and reconciliation report and a bunch of other books that have been published about it so it's trying to put it all together in one narrative yeah hopefully sounds good good. yeah thank you okay i'm gonna have to get that when it comes Mm -hmm. out let me know and i'll go and buy it so that's good. So I'm going to go in a totally different direction mm-hmm. altogether right now. And that is, I understand you enjoy extreme trampolining in the park. Yeah, for sure. What is that? I mean, well, extreme. <laughs> I know trampolining, I don't know a park, but what's extreme? So there's like a new extreme trampoline park actually over by the highway, over at Gardner's Road. Oh, yes. It's a whole kind of complex that they have developed now. I think it opened just over the last year or so, and I've been going there a couple of times, and it's a really fun time. They have all kind of trampolines in a huge area that you can jump around in but they also have like dodgeball and like basketball so you can oh. practice slam dunks and then oh, okay. they have like a ninja warrior course if you've seen that before i hope there's a lot of padding around yeah there's for... lots of padding because <laughs> <laughs> that'd be the bit that would scare me is yeah. like people you're know, bonging all over the yeah, place for sure. and... and then actually on friday nights they like turn off the lights after nine o'clock and play like music and it becomes more of like a, an oh, adult cool. atmosphere i think it's 16 plus so it's more kind of <laughs> not a bunch of kids because you can't really hurt them anymore it's no. More of like adults, so it, yeah, it's a really fun time. Okay, so you clearly enjoy it for sure. Yeah, yeah it's great. <laughs> see, it's amazing what our grad students get up to mm-hmm. in, in their spare time for sure. Yeah, to, to help relax yeah. and have some fun. Uh, Jackson, it has been great having you on the show. Thank you very much for coming in and, and agreeing to do this interview with us. And I wish you absolute best with not only your research but the book that's coming out as well. And uh, hopefully, with some of the work that you've been doing, it can make a little bit of a change along the way for everybody so thank you thank you for having me on you're very welcome so that's it everyone another week of grad chat sadly comes to an end don't forget you can download the show tomorrow from either itunes google podcast or stitcher just type in a grad chat until next week this is cj the dj signing off with a big hooray Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 